As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. On December 30th, 2021, the Marshall Fire ripped through suburban neighborhoods in the Denver-Boulder metropolitan area, spread by high winds and fueled by months of drought. The wildfire left two people presumed dead, burned more than 6,000 acres, and destroyed more than 1,000 homes. Bob Henson is one of several atmospheric scientists who call that area near Boulder home. He joins us to talk about the fire on this edition of Weather Geeks. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, thanks, Marshall, for having me. It's uh, good to be here. Well, you know, before we really dive into the the meteorology of the Marshall Fire and the climatology and climate aspects and human aspects and many other aspects, I just want to say right off the top that, um, you know, I have a lot of really amazing guests on Weather Geeks, but this is someone that I'm really a huge fan of. Uh, He's an amazing meteorologist and science communicator. uh, And so it's just really a thrill for me to have Bob Henson on on Weather Geeks. Bob. I start every podcast with this question. How'd you become a weather geek? Ah, well, for me, as for so many other meteorologists, it started really early. I grew up in Oklahoma City, and when I was seven years old, I was watching TV one Saturday night, and it was interrupted by a tornado warning. And I was instantly intrigued and wondering, how did she know that there was going to be a tornado? Um, This was Lola Hall, who had already been a weathercaster in OKC for quite a while. Uh, Now, mind you, this was before the Internet, uh, before the Weather Channel, and pretty much before NOAA Weather Radio. So TV was pretty much the only way people would know about something like a tornado warning. So I went outside briefly and looked up at the swirling clouds, and it was like an epiphany. I I realized I wanted to know what was going on and why there was this tornado warning. So, So that really, really started it for me. Yeah, you know, let me just give the listeners a bit of your background. You're a meteorologist and journalist, including with Yale Climate Communications. You write for the Capital Weather Gang of the Washington Post, WeatherWise, and Texas Climate News. Uh, you've been a meteorologist and writer for the weather company, IBM Weather Underground, uh, a writer and editor for media relations with the University Center for Atmospheric Research, better known as UCAR. Uh, you have a BA uh, meteorology and psychology from Rice University, uh, University of Oklahoma, MA in journalism with meteorology focus. And you're the author of what I think is hands down one of the best, if not the best climate book for uh, the lay person. It's called The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change. Highly recommend you check that book out if you want to know about climate change in a way that you can understand it. I think Bob does an amazing job with that. So are you also a journalist geek too? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I have to admit that I am. You know, in high school, I was already uh, solidly into weather. And then uh, Watergate happened, and that uh, piqued my interest in journalism. Uh, and so I was on the school paper, school yearbook in high school, and I knew I, I was uh, approaching a, a, a point in the woods where I'd have to choose one or the other. So I went all the way through bachelor's and then started master's in meteorology. And midway through, I realized, oh, I really want to write about this. So I ended up getting what was essentially a dual master's with all the coursework in meteorology and all the coursework in journalism. So even though it's an MA, it's 
I, uh, you know, I, my thesis was in how warnings are broadcast on uh, local TV. So I was looking at how long it took people to get on the air in Oklahoma City TV with warnings and how accurate they were. In other words, what, did warnings fall through the cracks? Um, because this was still a time at which uh, warnings came over the wire, essentially, and it was up to the weathercaster to get those on the air as soon as they could. Uh, so, so that was an interesting study. And shortly after that, I came to Boulder, uh, worked at the newspaper here briefly, and then an opening came up at um, UCAR NCAR, uh, National Center for Atmospheric Research. And I was a writer editor there for 26 years and um, just absolutely adore UCAR NCAR. It was a fabulous place to um, learn how to be a, a science writer and to, in fact, to learn about climate change. Um, I, I, climate change was just entering kind of the you know, the the public dialogue in the late 1980s. This was about the time of the Yellowstone fires and uh, Jim Hansen's famous testimony in Washington uh, on a hundred three degree day, something like that, that uh, uh, we were starting to see the signs of the greenhouse effect. So uh, it was really in the early 90s that I began writing about climate change. So amazingly, now it's been about 30 years of uh, covering that as well as weather. Talking with Bob Henson. Now, you know, you know, we, I could talk to you about a host of things, but the things we're talking about today are related to uh, recent fires in Colorado. Just to set the stage, uh, there were deadly wildfires, destructive wildfires that went through Boulder County, uh, Colorado towns of Louisville and Superior, just two days before the new year. Uh, I know that I, I know so many people that live in that area. It's obviously you do. And I know this this area is home for you as well. So set the stage for us in terms of you personally. Where were you uh, on the day that this was happening? Uh, were you personally impacted and so forth? Well, interesting you asked that, Marshall, because on the day of the fires, um, we knew there was going to be high wind. Um, you know, uh, wind season in Boulder uh, peaks in December, January. So this was right down the climatological alley. Uh, it was a perfect setup with the jet stream, uh, very strong from west to east, right over the Rocky Mountains. And often you not only get those high winds associated with the large scale pattern, but you get what's called a mountain wave where the winds even higher in the jet stream get kind of ducted and focused and come over the mountains and slam down on the front range. So this was one of those days. And uh, by late morning, there were already gusts uh, over 90 miles an hour at NCAR. Uh, there was a gust to around noon to 115 miles an hour uh, at Rocky Flats, just a few miles south. So uh, one of the worst windstorms in quite a few years. Well, while this was happening, I was visiting family in Oklahoma and just left Oklahoma City that morning uh, and started to get text messages from friends. Uh, you know, this is really looking bad. Um, and um, uh, so fortunately, I was in a rental car that had Bluetooth. So uh, instead of listening to music or podcasts, I was essentially listening to text messages and texting folks and seeing how they were doing. Um, uh, and it was pretty clear by early afternoon that a catastrophe was happening. Um, uh, you could see the smoke. My partner was also works at UCAR and car uh, took video and sent me photos and uh, was keeping me up to date. And there was just this phenomenal, horrifying smoke plume uh, that really started just south of Boulder. And I'll, I'll set the geographic stage for uh, listeners. Uh, Boulder is right against the Front Range. You know, you can walk from Western Boulder right up the mountains. De Denver is about 30 miles to the southeast. So Denver is a little bit out on the plains, actually. Um, and the road between Boulder and Denver is called US 36. And again, about 25, 30 miles. So when you're going from Denver to Boulder, the last two towns you encounter are Louisville and Superior. And that's exactly where the fires hit. So the fires reach this 
Denver Boulder Highway right there. Uh, these two towns are only about six or seven miles from Boulder. Many, many commuters live in Louisville Superior. Uh, it's a more affordable place, um, very fast growing. Uh, in fact, um, most of the neighborhoods that were hit and destroyed uh, were built since about the mid 1980s. So one interesting thing, if this fire had happened, say, 40 years ago, uh, probably there would have been very little destruction um, just because of the nature of the landscape. So so that is one piece of this whole equation is is how much growth has happened. And it's kind of the urban wildland interface and kind of not. We don't often think of it that way for these two towns because they're not in the forest. Right. Sometimes when you think of the wildland urban interface, uh, cities that grow out into the fire prone areas, these are kind of forested, you know, you're up in the foothills uh, overlooking a town or city. Uh, these are out on the plains. It is grassland. Um, however, it's open space protected grassland. And so that's what made the difference. The fire started a few miles south of Boulder, it, it appears, uh, near a tiny town called Marshall and quickly swept eastward. And uh, within an hour or so, it went from just being reported as a fire to gobbling up neighborhoods. And, uh, and you know, you you hit it. I'm talking with Bob Henson. We're talking to the Marshall Fire. Bob's an outstanding meteorologist and uh, science journalist within our field of weather and climate. Someone, if you're, we'll give his follow information later on social media, but definitely follow him and read his stuff. Uh, you mentioned some many aspects that I want to dig dig into. First of all, uh, has there been confirmation on what started the fire? I know I even wrote some things early, and there was some mm-hmm. initial media suggesting down power lines from the wind started the fire. Uh, then there was some question about whether that was the case or not. So have you heard any more about what started the fire? And then tell us a little bit more about how this these high winds, this momentum coming downward that you explained from a meteorological perspective, how that conspired for such a, a rapidly spreading fire. Because I, I was actually at the Orange Bowl in um, Miami for a football game. The University of Georgia was playing uh, Michigan. And one of my colleagues there was saying, well, how could that just happen so fast? Why didn't they have any warnings? So first of all, it started the fire and then tell us more about how it spread just so fast. Well, sure. Um, So uh, simply put, I think it was the speed of the winds and the strength of the winds. You know, you you hear about gusts of, you know, as I mentioned, 90, 100, even 110 miles an hour. Right. Uh, but it wasn't just an occasional gust like that. I mean, the winds were probably sustained at 60 miles an hour for six or seven hours, right? With many, many gusts uh, over 80. So it was just an onslaught of wind um, and not just wind, but very dry wind. Uh, it was not particularly warm. It said temperatures were in the 40s, um, which is, you know, average high for this time of year. But uh, it was extremely dry and a really important part of this is that the landscape was just just desiccated. It was just parched. parched. Uh, we had had up to that point in Boulder, uh, we had a total snowfall for the entire fall and winter of uh, 0.3 inches. Um, that was by far the least snow we've ever had in a winter through December 30th. Um, uh, I think precipitation was second mo- second driest for the for the fall, and it had been. Um, the second warmest fall on record. And actually, if you go back to June, uh, by far the warmest period on record for June to December. So, so the landscape was just prime for fire. And I think that made the difference, right? We, we do get these windstorms every few years, but when you have a landscape that dry um, and even, you know, if we just had a little snow, 
Uh, once you get to December, there will be patches on the north slopes of, of, of hills and ridges. You'll have little pockets of snow. You'll have wet areas in the landscape. And that would have helped a, a lot. Um, you know, just have had a little bit of snow several weeks before. I don't think this fire would have happened the way it did. It just oh, was awesome. just it was just parched. It was just yeah. kindling. And you throw on top of that 80, 90 mile an hour winds. And then somehow the fire started. It's still under investigation, is my understanding. Um, the, the initial uh, thinking it was power lines was knocked down, so to speak, because uh, it was apparently uh, telecom lines that were burned down and not power lines. Uh -huh. So it's still under investigation. There are a couple of areas where we know there was fire as early as, say, 11.30 p.m. Um, but keep in mind, it was an hour later that neighborhoods were burning in Superior, you know, five miles away. So however it started, this thing spread extraordinarily quickly. And uh, it's amazing that only there's been only one fatality, one person still missing. And the one fatality was someone who didn't know there was a fire and was staying home in Marshall to try, try to protect his home. So uh, people did get out uh, there. There are videos all over social media. I'm sure you've seen Marshall of uh, people walking out of a shopping center in Superior. And it's like a hellscape. You have these winds. You, you can only see 50 feet in front of you. Uh, there's patches of orange glowing in the distance. And what do you do? <laughs> you know, I, I'm so amazed and pleased and, and grateful that people were able to find safety. So that, you know, from that point of view, it was, a, you know, it, I don't know if success story is the right word because there wasn't, you know, tons of warning that a fire was coming, but it was a success in terms of people getting out and getting to safety, I would say. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with my colleague, Bob Henson, meteorologist and journalist who writes for Yale Climate Communications, uh, Capital Weather Game, Washington Post, Weatherwise, and Texas Climate News, among others. And it's the author of the book, The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change. And yeah, I, you know, I just to sort of set some uh, stages here a bit more, Boulder County officials confirmed at least 1,084 homes were destroyed making this fire one of the most destructive on record in terms of number of structures destroyed. And it's to your point that you made, it happened all within less than 24 hours. And in some cases, I mean, I'm, I'm reading stories. Like I said, I have many friends in an area and I'm literally was reading Facebook posts from friends and colleagues about how matter of 10 to 15 minutes decisions make it made whether to leave their homes may have saved their lives. I mean, people that I know and interact oh, with yeah. and see at conferences just yeah. was amazing to see these stories. Have you heard stories? Yeah. like I mean, I, I oh, saw one colleague yeah. said if they had stayed 10 minutes longer, they may not have made it. Oh, yeah. Um, Jonathan Vai, a, a colleague at NCAR, and, um, is one, one of those folks. He was on the front page of the Denver Post the other day. Uh, he works for the... Um, the the lab called RAL, which works on uh, uh, aviation and other kinds of uh, warning systems. And ironically, he is working on a project to help people assess their vulnerability to hurricanes. So it's an app that people can download. Uh, I'm not remembering the name right now, but uh, you can download it and assess your house, the characteristics of your house and figure out uh, how much at risk you would be from hurricane winds. So here, here's Jonathan, a scientist who specializes in this. And all of a sudden, he had to assess his home's vulnerability to wind-driven fire. 
And I, I believe he got out maybe 20 minutes before the house was was consumed. Um, a next door neighbor of his, uh, a woman was sleeping in the basement. She worked at the Target just a couple of blocks away. And a coworker of hers knew that this woman had worked a late, late or early shift and was sleeping. So that woman left her post at the store, got to the house and, and roused the woman to get out of the house just in time. And otherwise, it probably would have been a tragic death. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, it, it, you, you mentioned this earlier, 40, 50 years ago, because the, the development really wasn't there at that time. This might not have been the sort of human event that it ended up being. But having said that, I mean, we know that there is sort of urban development along that corridor. Um, and we know that the meteorology and topography of that region can lend itself to these types of events. So this seemed to be somewhat of an anomaly in some ways. Uh, very much picked up by the National Weather Service in that area, by the way. And I wrote on this, and I know you did as well. Um, I mean, the, the threat of high winds was certainly there. And so I think the forecasters on duty really put that in some of their wording. But I, no one could have anticipated this spark from whatever the winds and I'm sorry, the, the wires and whatnot would spread that rapidly. But my question for you, Bob, is are we at a time, do we have enough sort of policy preparation and mitigation against these types of events, given that we are in a developed area in that part of the country? I think this was a wake up call, Marshall. I don't think anyone really expected this kind of a massive fire as far east as Louisville and Superior. Uh, I think there's many other communities, you know, the fire range is so quickly growing and the communities are doing such a good job of protecting uh, ribbons of open space and uh, areas of, of open land between these towns and the mountains. So you're preserving these beautiful views. You've got uh, ample recreational opportunities. There's so many pluses of, of being near a city and also being near this recreation. Uh, the downside, of course, is that you're at risk of fire. Uh, I always worry terribly that this would happen in Boulder. And there's no reason it couldn't have happened in Boulder. Uh, if the fire had started on the west side of Boulder, uh, it could have been a, a horrible event right here in, in Boulder. Uh, so it really was luck of the draw, that uh, bad luck of the draw that, that put it in Louisville Superior. But there's so many communities uh, along the front range. I think just as parts of California have had to wake up in the last five to 10 years and realize they're more at risk of fire than they thought they were. Uh, I think that's the case here. And I think also there's been a seasonal wake up. Uh, I think we used to think of Colorado fire risk as being just in the summer. And more and more now, we are having warm, dry periods push not only through early autumn, but well into November, December. Uh, the most destructive fire in Colorado history before this one was the Troublesome Gulch fire. That was two years ago, and that was in October and that wow. consumed more than 500 structures. And we thought that was totally surreal to have a fire in October, right? And now here we are, you know. So uh, I think this is telling us uh, we can't use the calendar as a fire safety tool anymore. It, it can happen any time of year uh, in a warming climate. Um, that's just the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I want to mention, I think earlier in the podcast, I called Louisville, Louisville, because I'm just looking at the spelling as I was reading it. But I do know I've, I've spent time in Boulder in that area myself. So I'm familiar with the landscape. And I I, my, five, my, uh, my father's family is all from Kentucky. So it took me a long time to train myself out of Louisville. Yeah. When, when you're reading from, you know, the introductory notes, you just see it looks like Louisville. But I do know that there that it is referred to as Louisville. So I heard you mention that and it, it charred me. But yeah, you actually, you know, to, to put an exclamation on the point you just made in, in, in your Yale Climate Connections article, 
you write that the Marshall Fire put an exclamation point on a migration of warm season threats toward winter. And I think you just explained what that meant. And I, you know, I, you know, there was a lot of discussion in recent weeks also with all of the tornadoes that were happening in December, uh, destructive tornadoes that we saw in the South and Mid-South and so forth. And I think that's another case where I think we have this sort of mental model of what should happen at certain seasons and certain times of the year. Uh, But, you know, you've you've written on climate change. Uh, How do you discuss drought and fire in your book, The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change? I mean, I know you you talk about it and you even talk about population. Uh, Contextualize um, this event within the framing of your what you write about in your book on fires and climate and fire danger. Sure. Um, I I see this as an extension of a thread in research that's been growing the last 10 years. And I would even call it to me the most impressive and startling finding uh, in terms of U.S. climate change impacts of the last 10 years. And uh, this emerged in California where it's become apparent, uh, you know, their fire risk has just exploded in the last few years, the number of destructive fires. And it's not been a gradual thing, right? It really took off this year. And so it it leads to the question, well, why now? You know, why so suddenly? Um, And along with that, there's been increasing science showing that uh, it's not so much that it's drying out in California or the West, right? If you look at annual precipitation, there have been terrible droughts. There have been very wet years. Um, There's been kind of an ongoing drought since 2000. And and some consider it a mega drought, right? But not every year is is dry. There have been some very wet years. Um, Arizona had, I think, one of the very wettest monsoon summers on record um, recently. So it's not it's not so much the drying per se. It's that when they're dry, it's now hot. So what are called hot droughts, right? And so it's the confluence of the heat with the dryness that that sucks moisture out of the soil, and it makes any drought way worse in terms of impacts and. So in California, there's uh, scientists, including Daniel Swain and Noah Diffenbaugh, have been publishing on this. And it raised that awareness even since the last edition of my book. I think that's become more apparent. Now, I hadn't really translated that to Colorado until the events of the last three years. And I think now I'll be updating that book pretty soon. And I think I'm going to have to really point out that this is not just a California phenomenon. It's, uh, you know, hot droughts are a huge, a huge threat. Um, And something I would say when I first started writing about climate change, it wasn't really in the landscape because the focus was just on, okay, where are temperatures changing and where is precipitation changing as discrete problems, right? Now there's more attention to what the last IPCC report was calling compound threats, right? Uh, Where it's a couple of things in proximity, for example, maybe a hurricane and then another hurricane two weeks later or a year later, right? Uh, look at Lake Charles and, and Louisiana coast and what they've gone through in the last year. So it's not just one event. It's it's the whole landscape, the whole mosaic of things that can happen in a changing climate. And some of those are, uh, are going to be surprises. And it doesn't mean that uh, climate change is, is still in question. What it means is that the implications of climate change are 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 not all clear yet. And that's going to take time. And that's where really interesting and important research is happening, I would say. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with meteorologist and uh, journalist Bob Henson about the Marshall Fire, the recent fires that we saw in Colorado uh, just before the new year. And I think one thing that was clear to me, and it sounds like it was clear to you too, is this was a convergence of a meteorological event within the context of drought, likely coupled to some climate signals that we're seeing. But then there's the human factor. I mean, we it's undeniable that people and growing structures and infrastructure and so forth exacerbate these compound events and these extreme weather events and these climate events as well. Um, for example, I mean, you know, Jen Carfagno, uh, who put together these notes for the uh, show, she's just an amazing meteorologist on the Weather Channel. And I know many of you watch her often. Uh, she she notes that the Marshall Fire was much smaller in acreage burn acreage burn than the Colorado's three largest fires. So smaller fire from a footprint standpoint. Uh, three Colorado's three largest wildfires: the Cameron Peak, East Troublesome, and the Pine Gulch, which all happened in 2020, by the way, to make your point uh, mm-hmm. earlier. But the Marshall Fire burned in a densely populated area, and I think that's the point that 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 you were making earlier. Now, in your book, and again. Make sure. Let me. Bob's not paying me. I'm not on his payroll. Let me just make that clear. But I honestly believe if you are a non-scientist trying to understand this climate change stuff that you hear about all the time, this is one of the best books to, to consume. I, I really believe that. And I, Bob knows I'm not just saying this because on the podcast, because I've tweeted that before and posted it in places too. So in your book, uh, you have a section or sections devoted to solutions and actions when it comes to climate change. Uh, can you highlight some of that uh, generally, uh, or even particularly as it relates to our topic of discussion today, but generally as well? Sure. And, and thank you for the kind words, Marshall. I, you know, when I was finishing the book, it was quite a quite an ordeal to get that book written. Uh, the first edition came out in 2006. And I remember the last few days, I'm like, I just want to get this done. And I just hope it's OK. That's all I care about now. So I'm just. No, it's, it's a it's a it's a standard. And I think you, you you're too humble and nice to know that. But it's clearly a book that I go to now. I appreciate that a lot. I, I'm very grateful that uh, the, the American Meteorological Society is now home to it. So uh, uh, it was originally the rough guide to, to climate change, and uh, that was a great ride as well. So um, anyway, uh, you know, in terms of first uh, generally, uh, there are things to be done on so many levels and, and things are happening. I think sometimes people get pessimistic and doomist and say, well, we're not doing anything. Uh, you know, U.S. emissions have actually dropped. Uh, 10 to 20 percent in the last 15 years, believe it or not, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, Some of that has not been a conscious effort. It's just happened as a result of things like going from coal to natural gas uh, with the marketplace driving a lot of that. But nevertheless, that I mean, the atmosphere doesn't care how it happens. The the atmosphere just cares. Does does the carbon go down? Right. So uh, there has been progress and a lot of countries around the world have made great progress. So Emissions globally are probably near their peak right now. They're, they're, they need to drop. Uh, the projection is that to, to keep a reasonable chance of a, a keeping warming to 1.5 degrees C, they're going to have to drop about 50% this decade, right? That's, I think that's a tall order. 
but we're at least heading that direction, I, I think, and hope. Uh, pe people can do things on a personal level, too. And uh, there's often a debate, you know, well, does it matter what we do personally if society isn't acting? And I think it's both. Uh, like so many things, it's multifactorial. Uh, we've got to encourage our leaders to do it, what needs to be done in terms of policy. Uh, we can do things. Uh, you know, here's a simple thing. If you live in a climate that allows this, put your clothes out on the line, you know, if your neighborhood allows it. And if your neighborhood doesn't allow it, let make your neighborhood allow it, right? Uh, you know, dryers are one of the biggest energy hogs in our homes. And I, I have only been converted the last couple of years. I have a little more time flexibility now, and I'm hanging my laundry out um, pretty much all the time. And when I can't, if it doesn't get fully dry, then it takes 10 minutes in the dryer instead of an hour, right? Uh, so, yeah, it sounds like a silly little thing, but if everybody could do some form of that, even get a rack in your house to hang some stuff on, you know, uh, uh, yeah, my wife does that as well. Oh, she does. Beautiful. Bravo. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. So, yeah, those things, they add up, you know, um, and it doesn't always have to be deprivation. Right. You know, setting the thermostat cold in the winter is hard for me. I, I'm a warm weather lover and I get cold really easily. So uh, I think those those little things and there's lots of good resources and places to find uh, stuff to do, you know, um, you know, cars that get better mileage and, and obviously plug ins. Uh, one car I've written about, and I have one myself, is a PHEV, which is a plug-in hybrid and poorly understood, but it's kind of like two cars in one. You have a gas engine, but you also have an electric, full-on electric car within the car. And if you just drive in town, you can do almost all your driving in pure electric mode, not burn any gas. So uh, that's one option for people. And, you know, within a few years, I think we'll be full electric for most cars. So things are happening and just I encourage people to find what they can do personally and, you know, push your leaders, push companies, you know, patronize companies that are doing what they can do. And it's going to take a little bit of everything and, and a lot of some things. As well. Yeah, I would agree with that as a someone who recently converted to an all electric vehicle, which I'm loving it, by the way. And I'm loving that seventy five hundred dollar tax break I'm about to get when I <laughs> yes. this year, too. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I try not to fly as much as I used to. And we, we do composting here at the house and some of the other things that you suggest. So there there are these little little incremental things that we can all do. But I, I think you're right. We've got to also push on the levers of political action of all leaders, irrespective of their party uh, nationally and internationally mm -hmm. as well. Now, and and oh, I was just going to say also state and local, you know, make a huge yes, difference. You know, states yes. are doing so much. Cities are doing a lot, too. Yeah, this is a great point. In fact, I know with some of the new bills coming forth, I was just on a meeting the other day. Uh, some of the, the infrastructure bills, some of the other things coming out of Washington, uh, it is requiring some state and local jurisdictions to develop climate action plans if they don't have them before they can get access to the funds, which is amazing. Oh, so, well. Yeah, it's something that I just just heard about in our meeting this year. I want to circle back as we draw our clothes, Bob. We were talking about solutions and climate. Let's go back to the fires for a second. And you mentioned that this was a wake up call. So what is the solution space for warning for these events meteorologically and for also preventing them this scale of event going forward? Any idea? I mean, I know this is not necessarily your expertise, but just as a resident there, what are some things that you see that we can do to mitigate or prevent this in the future? Boy, that's a great and important question. Um, I, and I don't know as much as I should know about what the Weather Service can and ought to do in terms of, of dedicated fire warnings in urban settings. Um, I do know there was a, a tweet from the NWS telling people in Louisville Superior that life-threatening fires were going through town, and I was glad to see that. Um, 
you know, uh, I think uh, awareness of your house and are you in fire country? Uh, if you are, uh, be prepared to get out of your house and not only have a plan, but rehearse that plan. And uh, our friend Jonathan Bai uh, mentioned this himself in his in his uh, writings. Uh, he he said they had a plan, but they didn't have it on a clipboard. They hadn't drilled it, so he lost uh, a hard drive with years and years of work that was sitting in his basement. Uh, he didn't have it in his plan, and he hadn't practiced. So uh, I think just knowing the structure of your, of your house and your neighborhood, also building going forward, uh, there are ways to make houses more fire resistant, right? Um, there's some kind of concretized sidings that can uh, keep fires from burning. Uh, there's uh, characteristics of how homes are built relative to each other. So I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of of new um, development and uh, retrofitting is more of a challenge, but um, that's something important. Uh, how we build on the larger scale um, and, uh, um, you know, keeping defensible space around your house, you know, um, in some areas, big trees hitting the house can make a big difference in terms of fire threat. Uh, interestingly, in this fire, maybe because it was a specific nature of the fire, but uh, some people had their, they lost their houses, but their trees are still there. So go figure. Yeah, um, I saw, I saw I, I th- yeah, I, I'd say right now, just awareness is the main thing. I, I think if nothing else, uh, this has just shaken people. I know I've, I've been shaken uh, simply knowing so many people who've been affected. I'd say more than any other disaster. And this is after growing up in Oklahoma City and going to college in Houston and seeing people kayak down the streets of my college in a flood, right? Uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of weather disasters. And even the, the Kentucky tornadoes that struck the county where my father grew up. And uh, I've been through Mayfield many times. So that was uh, pretty rattling. But uh, by far, this fire has been the hardest for me emotionally. And it's going to be years, probably three to four years before many people can rebuild uh, with a supply crunch. Right. Um, so yeah, just I've, awareness. It all starts with awareness. And that's why your show is so important. You know, well, and that's why I'm, it's important that the, the, the knowledge brokers and experts like you come on this show. So I want to thank you, Bob. And, you know, I, I really my thoughts went immediately to people like you and many of the good colleagues that I know in that area. So I'm glad that you and, and your loved ones are safe. Um, you know, where can people find you? We're drawing to a close here. But where can People find you on social media, Bob. I know you're out there. I am out there. I'm on Twitter, uh, B Henson weather, and it's H E N S O N. So B H E N S O N weather. Um, that's my main social media outlet. And my Facebook page is really mainly for friends. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't, I don't, like you, unfortunately, I need to have a second uh, professional Facebook page. I have not done that yet. Yeah, I would highly recommend it because I would <laughs> totally follow it and, put, and push all my people that follow my professional page there because you're just a wealth of amazing information. But definitely follow him on Twitter because he puts his, um, anything that he writes goes on his Twitter and it's amazing. You will um, be instantly smarter and more knowledgeable anytime you read anything that Bob Henson writes. So, Bob, Thank you so much. Before we go, I mean, normally we would have a geek of the week uh, at this time of the show before we end. But just as a reminder, uh, we're taking new nominations for the geek of the week for the year 2022. So if you know someone that would be a deserving candidate for our next geek of the week, scientist, superstar, a great geologist, a weather weenie, or someone that just loves the weather, uh, make sure you check out our social media pages on Twitter and Facebook for how to nominate them or self-nominate yourself as well. Bob, thank you so much for joining joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, thank you, Marshall. It's really been a delight to be here. Thanks. And uh, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, University of Georgia. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.